Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Leo Alstrom. I'm the worship arts pastor here at Rolling Hills. In our current series, Advance, we've been diving into different aspects of health, and today is a financial health. Money is a topic that our world tends to talk pretty often about, whether you're a Christ follower or not. It affects our lifestyles, our status at times, and some days our stress levels. God created us to use money and resources for His glory. So let's gain some new insight in financial health today and see how we can conform to God's plan for money versus the world's. Thanks for joining us today. Well, good morning. Hey, listen, it's funny to me, um, not in a ha-ha way, but in a little bit of an ironic way, that we're preaching through a series called Advance when I kind of just feel like 2022 got off on a false start. Um, and, and more than anything else, I'm like going backwards and digging myself out of so many holes. We have just had a year already and January's not over. And it's, it's pretty strange to think about the idea that the enemy may be, in fact, inviting us to take a cold hard look at, at what it does mean to go forward in Christ and ultimately what would keep us on the back shelf. I am so excited about this morning. If you've participated in all at this series or if you go back and, and happen to take a chance online to watch the what will be five weeks of advancing in the kingdom of God, you're going to get the benefit because of the snow and the sickness and all the other things that everybody's been going on of hearing five different communicators communicate five different things that we're asking God to use us in this year. And if I could have picked any one of the five to finally get to be the communicator on a stage and talk about the idea of advancing, finances would have been last on my list, but here we are. And really the most ironic, this week should have started out with a little bit of reprieve as we celebrated and honored Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday. It was an opportunity to reflect on good things that have happened and yet also to remember how far we have to go in so many ways. It also would have been a way beca- day because of the holiday to sleep in, not so much at my house because at 3 a.m. the dog decided to wake up. She um, sleeps in our room, and by in our room, I mean in our bed. It's not weird if you judge me, it's okay. She sleeps at the foot of it, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, 3.30 in the morning, we hear this sound. Now, granted, it's only a few feet from me, but this is a sound that I promise you, maybe it's parenthood. It doesn't matter how deep my sleep is. It doesn't matter how many Tylenol PM I've taken beforehand. It doesn't matter how tired I am or how much I've given throughout the day. If I were anywhere within a 4,000 square foot radius, and trust me, our house is not that big, I could probably hear it at the neighbors, and I heard this sound, I would immediately jump to my feet and go into action. It was this. And I knew, I was like, we've got to get this dog out of the bed. We've got to get this dog out of the room. We've got to get this dog out of the house because she is about to throw up and I swung into action, had the dog outside, took care of things, and there she was, sick in the middle of the night. The nine-year-old was looking at us at 6.30 in the morning, and all of a sudden we had to wake up early on what could have been a day to sleep in with no alarm clock. Proverbs 26.11. Literally one of my, I don't think I should say favorite verses in all of Scripture, but the one that just makes the most sense to me is as a dog returns to its vomit. I'm sorry if you have a weak stomach, I just said it. So a fool repeats his folly. It's like when the great God of this universe wanted to give us a a mental picture of what it means to be a person who repeats the same mistakes over and over and over again. He painted the very perfect one. 
as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And I can hardly think of an area in my life, sorry Susan, I can hardly think of an area in our lives where we have repeatedly made some of the same mistakes over and over and been forced to learn the same lessons over and over and over again, and some of which we still haven't learned than if you were leaning into the idea of finances. This morning, I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start with just three verses, but ultimately gorge ourselves. I probably shouldn't have said we're going to gorge ourselves right after I just gave an illustration about, well, it's okay, whatever. Um, We're going to gorge ourselves on Scripture. Just the idea of all the way throughout Old and New Testament, there is a, a picture that's painted for us of what it means to be faithful in the area of finances and the way that God might call us as believers in Jesus to, to do it differently than the rest of the world does. And that doesn't mean we ignore worldly wisdom in the process. That means we take it to the next level and show the world the way that it really can be done in a way that honors God and blesses others and changes the face of things around us. First Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 17, says this, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Um, NASDAQ, stock market, all those things like go up and down, my retirement up and down, positive, negative. It is uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. A life that's truly life, not a shadow of life, not like a picture of life, not an idea of life, but life that is truly life. This whole idea of that they may lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation, it's the same picture of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, his, his longest and most recorded discourse, the idea of Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy it and where thieves break in and steal it, but store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in. It's for where your treasure is, they're your heart, they're your energy, they're your emphasis, they're your soul. That's where all of your attention is going to go. So what is your treasure in this life? And some of y'all are sitting back and I could sit back pretty easily and look at this whole idea of, okay, command those who are rich, verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 6, in this present world, Okay, well, good. I can ignore this passage of Scripture because I'm not rich in this present world. Whoo, hallelujah. This is speaking to somebody else, not me. Or is it? Is this talking, what, what does it mean? It's in your notes this morning, and we're taking a deep dive into this, and maybe one that um, challenges us and, and even offends us to a degree. What does it mean to be rich or to be wealthy? In the passage of Scripture, specifically the language that Paul is using here when he writes to Timothy, he's using the the Greek word plusios, and it literally means to be rich, to be abounding in material resources. So it's it's literally the worldly definition of rich or wealthy or well-off. And now you're saying, well, I really can tack this off, Nick, because I'm not the worldly definition of rich. I'm not the worldly definition of well-off. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Ultimately, the idea of rich, the idea of wealthy in this world is all about who you're comparing yourself to. So I went to a website this week and I tried to do a a screen grab of it. And so 
I, I looked up this idea, how rich am I? Maybe you can see this on your screen. It takes you to a site called Giving What We Can, and it gives you the opportunity to type in and choose, you know, where's your income? So ours is the United States of America. And, and I typed in the income of $75,000 a year. The average household median income in the city of Nashville is 83000 And so I put two adults and just, hey, let's just throw two kids in that mix and hit calculate. And I want to make sure that I read this correctly. If you have an average household income of $75,000 in the global economy, maybe not in the California economy, maybe not in the New York City economy, maybe not in the really nice side of Nashville economy, then you are in the richest 5.5% of the global population, 94.5% of the people in the whole world are poorer than you. We're, we're way up there, friends. And, and so you can go to that website and, and kind of type in any sort of amount that you want to uh, uh, tap into. Like, I play around with it a little bit. I type in, like, the average teacher salary, and, and it's not nearly enough that they make in our community. And, and you type that in, and you find out they're still in the top 10%. And, and then I type in what I think Oprah's salary is, and my, oh, my, oh, my, it's like 99.99999% like people in the world poorer than her. And it's no judgment here, but I'm sitting there going, you can type in any number and figure out where you are. Here's some stats to kind of start our day, to, to frame this idea of finding 59% of Americans, this is not the global economy, this is just the us economy, 59% of us live paycheck to paycheck. 33% of adults in America have saved zero for a retirement. Well, that's not, okay, that means, okay, that means 77% have. Good job, right? 38% of households in America do have credit card debt. 67% of people in the U.S. would have a really hard time paying a $1,000 emergency expense. And I don't know what's wrong with us, but we don't have $1,000 emergency expenses. You're like, you don't? No, we have like $2,000 emergency expenses. We have like $6,000. That stat, they should start redoing that. I'm going to give Dave Ramsey a call and say, we don't need a $1,000 emergency fund. We need like a $5,000 emergency fund because we get expensive emergencies. And the last one is this, 76% of millennials. And this is really an unfair statistic because ultimately I think if somebody would do the proper research, it wouldn't be 76% of millennials, people under 30. It'd probably be like 70% of all of us lack basic financial literacy overall. You can look at those stats. It's okay to be alarmed. Like, it's okay to be alarmed. But we are believers in Jesus Christ. And we know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We can be alarmed by those statistics. We can be alarmed by any of the numbers, but we can't be anxious about it. We should just be anxious about nothing. We can't be afraid of it. And even if you fall into all five of those, living paycheck to paycheck, tons of credit card to debt, lacking basic financial literacy, not having the $1,000 that you need for whatever emergency may come, even if you check all five of those boxes, there's absolutely no reason under heaven and under the banner of Jesus Christ to be ashamed by any of that, but to be prompted to see the way that God might help you to advance through that. The idea of debt and insecurity are the enemies of freedom and generosity. 
And the way that we start out any sort of financial understanding today, the way that we lean into these passages of scriptures today, the way that we understand that this audience is us, we are, we are being commanded as people who are indeed, regardless of where we fall on any of those statistics, we are a people based on where we live, based on what we have, and based on how we operate. We are a people who are being commanded as those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in it, but ultimately to put our hope in God. And when we do, we'll find out, it's in your notes today, that there's a difference between appreciation and accumulation. There's a big difference between appreciation and accumulation. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, right from the very beginning, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the, the law and the Old Testament that God gave to his people, he says this, but you are to remember. That idea of remembering is to, to, to worship, to acknowledge, to never forget. You are to remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. It's he who gives us the power to work. It's he who gives us the power to meet our needs. It's he who gives us the opportunities to be generous to others. We absolutely 100% know that it's God who grants. And this, Luke chapter 12, verse 21, Jesus is telling a story. You can go back and read the whole thing. It's this idea of bigger barns, and he's got this guy that just keeps amassing wealth, and he's like, hey, I don't have enough places to store all of my grain, all of my wealth, and so I'm just going to build a bigger barn to have it. You know, we're like the only nation in the world who has storage buildings as a retail business, right? Because we just have so much stuff, we can't put it all in our home. We got to put it, go in somewhere else and pay rent somewhere, because like, well, that's the only nation in the world. That's like a major big business, okay? So he says this at the end of that passage of scripture, Luke 12, 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Read the story. The picture for the guy building bigger arms was not a good one. When we want to juxtapose the idea of what it means to appreciate the blessings that we have as opposed to just accumulate more of those blessings, we have to first know where it comes from. It all comes from God. It all comes from Him. You can write out to the side. It all belongs to Him. We have to know where these resources come from. We have to know where these blessings come from and why in the world we have them in the first place. Why in the world would God choose in His sovereignty and His generosity to put us in a place where even making below the national the, the Nashville average in total income, we're literally sitting to be wealthier than 90, 85, 70 percent of the entire global population. Why in the world do we have these resources? It absolutely comes from him, and scripture is chopped full of warnings about the idea of greed and the idea of arrogance, and it's that we have to know what in the world these resources are for. We have to know where they come from, and we have to know what they are for. Both the limits that we endure in life when we don't have enough and the blessings that we boast about in life when we have more than enough have to be one-way streets towards glorifying God. I love this idea years ago, and I've read it several times since. I read a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. It's by an author and a pastor named John Piper. And Brothers, We Are Not Professionals is intended for pastors, and every chapter starts out, brothers do this, brothers think this, brothers say this. Like literally, okay, pastors, brotherhood, you fraternity of guys who stand up and communicate the word of God. Hey, listen to this. There's a chapter that says, brothers, tell your people copper will do. It's this whole juxtaposition of everybody wants the gold in life. Tell your people copper's good enough. 
Tell your people they don't have to have the absolute best of everything. Tell your people that just because a new upgrade comes out doesn't mean that they have to be on the waiting list to receive that upgrade. Just because we can afford it does not always mean that we should afford it. Pastors, tell your people copper will do. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 is not a passage that's about financial resources, but it can certainly be applied to it. It says this, that everything is permissible for me. Go buy the brand new thing. Go get the upgrade on this. Go ahead and prepare for this. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You, you may have heard it said that this idea in terms of budgeting and in financial resources and financial planning, that we as believers in Jesus Christ, or we as people who are just attempting to live good lives in general, should live according to a principle called 10-10-80. The idea that you give 10%, you save 10%, and you live on the other 80%. That would certainly be better than living beyond your means or going into debt every month. So 10-10-80 is a really wise start, and it can be traced back to a biblical boundary but it is not an absolute end. The, the idea that we, we tithe and save and spend, the, the, the biblical commands to tithe and the expectation that we live freely and generously and the idea that prudence and wisdom tell us that we should save for the future, ultimately at the end of the day, what this paints a picture for us is that God only asks for 10% of the income that he provides and we get to live and save the other 90%. But that 10, 10, 80 is not the end because what if you set a cap on the way that you live and ended up giving more. 10, 10, 80 doesn't have to be the end of the goal. The first goal that I ever scored in little kid soccer, man, I got that ball. I broke away. I'm so uncoordinated. I'm not an athlete. I really only did it because it was the social way to interact with other kids, and I always needed to be doing something because I was a little bit hyper as a child. You may be surprised by that. So here I am dribbling the ball down the field, and I've got people screaming at me, and in my mind, all those chants were, go, 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 and I'm broken away, and I'm literally, like the other kids have literally just stopped because they know I'm so far ahead. There's no way that they're going to catch me. I was going towards the other team's goal. Wrong one. And all the shouting that I just assumed was cheering was all the moms and dads from our team going, no, baby, you're running the wrong way. And all the kids are thinking, you're going the wrong direction. You can absolutely 100% be killing it at the wrong goal in life. And I think so many people get caught up in the idea of their finances that we're literally doing a great job. And what we assume is the cheers of the world around us. Yes, yes, yes. We're actually operating under the wrong goals. A lot of people get to the idea of, oh, the goal is to amass wealth or to live at a level above others. Sometimes they virtue signal by saying, oh, I just, I just want to earn more so that I can give more. It, it ultimately starts by practicing the idea of living on less regardless of what that income is. 10% may be the Old Testament instruction, but it's not the New Testament detail. It's the minimum, not the maximum. And here's why. People cannot tell that you believe that God is enough 
when your whole life is focused on obtaining and preserving extra stuff? We want to be able to honestly answer the questions. Like, like, can people look at my spending and the way that I live my life and draw the conclusion that godliness is my priority? Can can people look at my spending and my finances, my budget sheet, and, and conclude that God lives inside of me? Can people look at my generosity and and draw the conclusion that I really do care about others? In Acts chapter 5, there's this pattern of people in the early church like selling things and giving it to God, selling things and giving the proceeds and the resources back over to the Lord. And it's what we as a church have been blessed by so many times over and over and over again in the lives of for the kingdom and, and building buildings and, and, and providing resources and, and seeing our church come together in so many campuses. And there was this one occurrence where this man and his wife they sold a field and they held back a, a big significant portion of it for themselves and, and they, they announced to everyone, we sold a field and now we're going to give it over to the Lord. And the Lord knew that that was a lie. And so Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? When we lie to the Holy Spirit, it's because we've ultimately believed a lie ourselves regardless of the wisdom that you have and the experience that you have in life, regardless of how good your budget spreadsheets are, we can all believe in and even perpetuate lies. The enemy says, oh, you need this. The enemy says, oh, you deserve this. The the enemy says, this is going to make you happy. The enemy says, this is going to make you fulfilled. The enemy says, this is going to provide you with some status. The enemy says, oh, God doesn't care about that. But when we live outside our means, maybe ultimately what it really means is that we think we have to have more and somehow we deserve more and that it's okay to stretch outside of those limits. In order to to look different from the world, we have to live different than the world. Limits aren't a bad thing and living within them is a really God-honoring thing. Copper will do. We can live on less. We don't have to have the best in this world because we have the best out of this world, and it's, it's God. When everybody is after finer things in life, we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to redefine what is finer. There was a moment in the life of Jesus' ministry, and you can read about it in Mark chapter 10, where a a very rich young ruler comes to him and says, hey, Lord, what what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And and Jesus just gives him kind of this courtesy answer, and he says, hey, why don't you go and make sure that you've kept all the commands? And the little guy's like, hey, I promise you I've kept all the commands. And, And so Jesus tells him, he looks at him, the Bible says that he loved him. He says, one thing you lack Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the guy walked away sad because he had a lot of stuff. And and this has been used. This whole passage of scripture has been abused in a lot of people's lives from time to time. And here's the deal. God does not call every single one of us to go out right now today and sell absolutely everything that you have. This is not the definitive call in the life of every believer. Sell it and move in, in one direction or another. But the definitive call for every believer is 
love God first, seek him first. Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter six, throw off everything that hinders you, Hebrews chapter 12. Never have idols before him, way back at the beginning, Exodus chapter 20, and money and materials, they are such obvious idols in our lives. Instead, with our wealth, we're called to never put our hope in it, First Timothy chapter six. But instead, what, what are we supposed to do? To, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. We're to be a people who give, who, who give first generously. Luke chapter 6, verse 30 says, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. This is really hard because a man approached me yesterday in the Home Depot parking lot and asked for something and I didn't share. Hashtag confession. But we're to give generously. To, to anyone who asks and to anyone who is in need. The early church in Acts chapter 2, that's the way that they cared for one another, and that's what marveled the rest of the world around them, that they literally gave that generously. We're to give cheerfully. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. You should be led by the heart and the Holy Spirit in it, not reluctantly or under any compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We should also give sacrificially. Jesus tells a couple of stories with the same outline about piety and generosity, but they're both sacrificially. There's a, a, a woman, and Jesus is talking about it. It's in Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and then he saw this poor widow put in two very small copper coins. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but out of her poverty, she put in all she had to give. So we ask this question often, like we're, we're struggling with this as, yeah, do, do, do the wealthy need to downgrade their lifestyles? Is that what these passages of Scripture mean when it talks about not living haughty or arrogant lives? In order to fully put my hope in God, do I have to downgrade or, or limit my lifestyle? Paul does not say that. He doesn't say that specifically, but the question can be begged and the pieces can be put together over and over again in, in the parable of the seed that fell on the soil. There were the thorns that grew up in one of the seeds, and it, it literally, Scripture says, it, it choked out the seed. And then Scripture says, these thorns were life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they made them immature in their faith. We, we're not called by Scripture in any sort of specific manner to downgrade our lifestyles, but the warning is clear that wealth chokes out our faith, so we should exercise caution. This passage where Paul is writing to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 6, it's, it's, it's literally the idea of money and false teachers, and it says in verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation, and they fall into a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money. Not money itself, but the love of it is the root of all kinds of evil. There's a warning that goes along with it. And so we should be a people who, who, who give freely and cheerfully and sacrificially and then also secretly. Ma Matthew recorded the words of Jesus in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness 
That's your obedience, that's your generosity, that's your faith in front of others in order to be seen by them. It's okay if people notice what you're doing, but if you're doing it just so that you can be acknowledged, just so that you can be thanked, just so that you can be praised, just so that you can be heralded as someone who is, if you do, it says you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with the trumpets as hypocrites do in synagogues and on the streets in order to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, they've received their reward in full. So scripture does give us a pattern for how we can give and how we should live, how how we should regard the, the financial blessings and they are abundant that we've been given. Um, I want you to hear this morning, and what a blessing this is, um, to be able to provide testimonies of the way that God has worked in people's lives and the way that God has worked in your lives. And so we have the, the benefit and the pleasure this morning of hearing a testimony from Danny and Kelly Clausen from our Nolansville campus. So if you'll turn and watch with me. I'm uh, Danny Clausen, and this is my wife of 23 years, Kelly Clausen. And we have a daughter, 16, uh, Kenley Joe Clausen. So I'm a home builder. I've been in the home building industries for 31 years and love it. Love being able to make dreams come true and I'm very happy doing it. And I am very blessed that I get to be a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home wife. Love it. I'm very blessed that I get to do that. You know, tithing, it didn't, it didn't come easy by any means. Um, you know, when we married in 99, of course, um, we weren't involved in any church, so it just wasn't any part of uh, what we did. Paychecks come in every month, and paychecks went out every month. I mean, we kind of lived uh, by the seat of our britches, and um, what money we made, we spent it. So there was definitely no margin within uh, our bank account for, for tithing, but not having that discipline of tithing, it was a struggle back then. It was about four years into uh, us going to church, at one point we made, we kind of said, we, we can't afford to tithe. And we kind of looked at each other and was like, we can't afford not to tithe. Exactly. You know, we've got we've to make a decision here. When we made the decision to start, <laughs> to start tithing, uh, we sat down and really we went through bank account, I mean, bank statement after bank statement after bank statement, and looking at really where we put our money. And a big thing for us too was putting that budget, putting giving, putting church at the top of that, top of that list. It was a, a whole mind shift for us of saying if we're going to do this and we want it to be the first, the first of our fruit, and it, it needs to come out of the first of the month. So we had to completely change kind of how we thought, thought through things. I think it was honestly the best decision we could have made uh, for our whole life of just putting God first, and not just finances, but everything. Well, I think too, when you do start giving and you give with a joyous heart, you get more blessings that way. Whether it's, you know, you're, you're able to give more, you're able to help other people. It's just, you're giving out of a cheerful heart and that's a blessing in itself right there. Bottom line is we've got to grow God's kingdom and it takes all of us to do it. You feel the Holy Spirit talking to you, you know, if this is where you need to go. And uh, once you take that step and you put God first and you show that, that, that discipline there, uh, you can't outgive God. He's going he's gonna to take care of you.
In the Old Testament, the tithe, the, the 10%, the temple tax, is, is the only opportunity that Israel was invited to test God. Hey, test me in this way and see what I will do for you. And so the first step as we advance in any sort of our level of understanding finances from a biblical perspective is to set aside and to provide for the Lord what ultimately belongs to him, a percentage of the income that he provides. And watching as a Matthew 6, seek him first, kingdom of God, and all these other things that we worry about, that we stress about, that we're, we're limited by, they fall into place as well. At the end of the day, what we kind of want to center on in the understanding of finances is the opportunity that we have in the world to go and live differently and to look differently and to be free and to be generous in a way to communicate the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of heaven that we've been given. Because first and foremost, finances should be viewed through a gospel lens. You may have you've heard this before. Pastors have talked about this before, and they're not wrong in their assessment and their literally counting of the instances in Scripture where they might say, well, the Bible talks about money more than it talks about any other subject, or Jesus mentions money more than, than in any other teaching. And, and there's a truth to that, that every single one of the parables, like 11 out of 30-something, there's li- literally a picture of finances and, and economics. But the truth is they're not about money. Jesus didn't talk about money more than anything. He talked about the kingdom of God more than anything. And he just used money. He just used finances. He just used agriculture. He just used the economy as an illustration to communicate greater and better truths. And that's what we're invited to do, to understand that God cancels and he commands debt cancellation. The picture of the gospel is ultimately the cancellation of debts. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says this, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailed it to the cross. The sin in our life, like a debt, has been removed. So when we talk about, when we understand, when we live out biblical finances, we're, we're ultimately getting to paint another picture of the gospel. God cancels our debt, and he commands that cancellation. And, and then this, the Christ-like life. The Christ-like life can be summed up by investments. We read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. So where are your biblical spiritual investments? In people, in generosity in tithing, in giving. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will reap generously. What are you investing your life in? Will it be a picture of the way that Jesus has provided for us? And whatever level of life that we're in, whether it's the college student, young adult, first getting started out, whether it's the older adult living on a fixed income or somebody in the middle of that and all of your working and amassing and trying to figure out what we're going to do years, is God first? And am I taking steps toward him or making it harder for me to see him and harder for other people around me to see him? Our finances are a tool. They're a tool that communicate the gospel. They are an opportunity for us to show others how good God is. You heard Danny say, you can't outgive God. And when we live life according to limits and freely and generously, we're showing people how good we believe God is, how we know that he's enough, and how that no matter what, he can be trusted. These are just a tool 
The resources that God provides are just a tool for us to see the Lord and to show others who he is. Would you pray with me today? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place. Thank you for the chance to to gather and to look at your truth and to understand that we all make mistakes and that we all have room to go forward, that we all have room to learn, that we all have areas of our life where we can make improvements on who we are and the way that we live. But God, more than anything today, we just want to look at this as an opportunity to tell you thank you for the blessings. Thank you for the abundance. Thank you for the gift of your son. And thank you for the unique call that's in our lives that we might go and communicate his goodness to the rest of the world around us. Would you help us, God, at whatever level we're at, at whatever opportunities we have, to use our resources and the way that we live to communicate the hope that we have? It's in Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it or share it with some friends. You can also check out some of our great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful for you.